Thank you very much for joining us today. So as I mentioned before, today's program is really an overview on residence rights and resident care under the new federal standards for nursing homes. This is particularly important. It's always important, but I think this is a really good time to be talking about it. One week from today will be a major milestone in terms of implementation of the regulations of the new nationwide survey protocol of the new federal guidelines related to the regulations and the new FTAGs. So we'll talk about all of that, but I just wanted to mention this one week from today, we're going to see some major changes and taking place or starting to take place. And that implementation will undoubtedly have um, repercussions for residents in the near future, as well as in the next coming years as that comes into place. So I, um, this is really, I think, really important stuff. Oh, a little bit about the Long-Term Care Coalition. Uh, as I've mentioned in the past, for those of you who have attended our programs, I always do a, at the start just a little bit about us and a little bit about the, the regulations and the regulatory structure and oversight, et cetera. So for those of you who have attended before, this might be a bit of a repeat. I'll try to make it fast. We are a nonprofit organization. We are entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for residents in nursing homes and assisted living in other residential care settings. We focus on systemic advocacy, so we don't have the capacity, unfortunately, to help individual families or individual residents uh, or, or advocates or ombudsmen. Our work is really looking at what is going on with the regulations, with the standards of, of care, with the minimum safety requirements to see how are they being implemented and whether identify where they're not being implemented and make recommendations for improvement to that. We do a substantial amount of education of consumers, families, ombudsmen, and other stakeholders through programs like this, which I think and I hope that others agree are valuable because if Fundamentally, if we don't know what our rights are as residents and as family members and those who work with them, there's little chance of us being able to exercise those rights. We're also home to the local uh, long-term care Amazon program in the Hudson Valley of New York. Very excited about that. It's been about three years. So what are we going to be talking about today? As I said before, I'm going to provide an overview of the nursing home system and the federal nursing home reform law. And then the focus will be on the changes going on now to the federal standards relevant to quality and dignity. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the other changes to improve oversight and transparency for nursing homes. And also I'm going to integrate into that some of the tools that we've developed, uh, their fact sheets for um, resident-centered advocacy. A bit about the nursing home system. So, and I've mentioned this before, so I apologize if you've been on prior programs. But just to give you a lay of the land, so to speak, the all nursing homes that are licensed to participate in Medicaid and or Medicare, in order to do that, they agree to meet all the standards that we talk about, all the standards provided for in federal law. Now, a state can have additional standards to that, but no state can have less um, standards or under, undercut or undermine those regulations. So what does that mean? It means that, for instance, some states, actually the majority of states now, have a requirement for a minimum number of staff, direct care staff, per resident per day. Our state, New York, does not have that. 
but about two-thirds of states now do have a minimum staffing requirement. Now, importantly, federal protections are for every single resident in the facility, whether Medicare pays for their, their care, whether Medicaid pays for their care, private pay, their uncle, um, et cetera, insurance. It does not matter. Everything that we talk about uh, relates to every single individual in the facility. And importantly, if I ever talk about a state standard in any of the work that we do, I will mention that. So everything that we talk about is a federal standard applies to every single licensed facility and every single resident or patient uh, within a licensed facility. The reform law, to me, I, I think, and I've really, I focus my career on this, of course, but it's, a, I think, a very special law. The law requires that every nursing home resident is to receive the care and the quality of life services that he or she needs to attain and maintain his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and social well-being. Uh, and those of you who've attended my programs before, we often will stop and talk about this because when I speak to people in person, especially family members or ombudsmen, it can be confusing and difficult to understand what that means. It's not highest practical. It's not what works out best for the facility or its owners or its administrator based upon how much staffing they want to hire, based upon what level of services they wish to provide, et cetera. It means that when a nursing home agrees to participate in Medicare or Medicaid, to be a licensed facility, that they are supposed to be focused on the needs of the individual residents. If they take someone in, they are promising that they can meet those individual needs. And if they don't meet those, those needs, but they're taking money to do so, they are, uh, in our eyes, essentially committing fraud. So that is a, uh, that's really in a nutshell, really goes to what, what the individual needs, what he or she is capable of doing. As I mentioned here, and I just think it's worth saying again, that is what we pay for. That is what providers agree to provide when they contract with Medicare, Medicaid services, and that is what every resident deserves. And that's both legally and, of course, I think morally, that every resident has the right, as I said before, to receive that level of care, whether her care is paid for by Medicaid, uh, by Medicare, which pays a lot of, you know, for care, by private pay, et cetera. So again, I, I just spend a few more moments on what highest practicable means. As I said, it's not practical. It's not what the facility wishes to provide. It's really focused on the individual. And I have two examples here. One is that if I'm a resident and I can go to the bathroom with help to walk to the bathroom, et cetera, I should not be put in a diaper because it is more convenient for staff. Now, I've been a family member. I've worked with many family members and talked to them over the years. This is quite often for us a really hard thing to get by because we're so used to staff people saying, well, there's just not enough staff to take your mother to the bathroom. Uh, we can't do that. And that is not appropriate. And if the standards were enforced, that would not be happening. So, again, that's these are difficult issues. I know it's challenging, but it is important for us to know what our rights are, I believe, and it is important for us to be advocating 
for this to be the reality for our residents. Second example I have is that if I like being around other people for Bible study, current events discussion, or other activities, bingo should not be the only social activity to which I have access as a nursing home resident. Why is that so important? Because quality of life and quality of care, in my mind and from what I've read and studies, et cetera, go hand in hand. Uh, I've never been in a nursing home where the clinical care was outstanding, but the quality of life was really terrible. Uh, when I go into a nursing home and I see that people are active, that they're engaged, that, that their call bells are, are answered promptly, that is a signal to me that the care is generally going to be pretty good there. And conversely, if I go into a nursing home and there are wheelchairs lined up along the hallway and people seem unhappy or they're sleeping, uh, call bells are ringing and no one's answering them, generally speaking, in my experience, that is an indication that there is something going on here that is not good. And generally speaking, uh, again, in my experience, I find that the care also in that kind of facility is not good. So these things, one, they're important. Quality of care and quality of life is important for all of us. But also, it is an important indicator, I think, of the quality of care that goes on or that is going on in the facility. So the law uh, emphasized, as I mentioned before, individualized patient-centered care. And the purpose of this, this is from 1987, was because there was tremendous uh, scandals, news reports about widespread problems going on in nursing homes across the United States. So the law lays out specific resident rights from, as I mentioned before, good care, including monitoring 24-hour-a-day skilled nursing care, means monitoring 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and including quality of life that will be surprised for many of us, maximizes the resident's choice the resident's dignity, and the resident's autonomy. And one of the reasons why we're doing these trainings this year uh, with the new regulations is because I think one good thing about the new regulations is that they talk about and operationalize some of those choice, dignity, and autonomy standards. So lastly, in short, every nursing home resident that takes, excuse me, every nursing home that takes in any Medicare or Medicaid money agrees to and is paid to have sufficient staff and appropriate services to ensure that all their residents are able to attain and maintain their highest practicable well-being. So question, and I've raised this before, if the nursing home reform law is so great, why are so many nursing homes poor places to live? and to get care. And from our, excuse me, from our perspective, that's because even though the laws are strong and the standards are strong, they are not well enforced. And that's why we have such a disconnect between what the promise of the law is and what the reality is for so many residents. So we, before we move on to the, the heart of what I wanted to talk, today, talk about today, excuse me, I wanted to just provide a brief overview of what the nursing home enforcement agencies are. So the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that's the federal agency under President Trump, Department of Health and Human Services. CMS is responsible for paying for Medicare and Medicaid services and for ensuring that the standards of care are met for every single resident. 
CMS contracts with the Department of Health. New York State, it's in the New York State Department of Health. The state survey agencies, usually the Department of Health, they are responsible for monitoring care and ensuring quality in every single nursing home. So they contract, the states contract, and are paid by the federal government to provide, to conduct that duty, including responding appropriately to resident and family complaints about care. In addition, here in New York, we have the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. Now, every single state in the country, except for North Dakota, has a Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. Uh, we, are, I'm very happy to say, uh, have worked closely with the Mfuku in New York over the years. Uh, I think they're one of the leading uh, Mfukus in the country. But there are a number of them, including California, for instance, which have really gone after nursing homes that are failing to provide the level of services that they promise to provide when they contract with Medicare and Medicaid. And so they can be a very important component to improving care and quality of life, especially when the state agency uh, may not be identifying and addressing all the problems that, that might be going on in a nursing home. In addition, here in New York, we have a New York State Comptroller's Office and the Office of the Medicaid Inspector General. I would say both the Comptroller's Office and the OMIG, they focus more on uh, audits rather than on the policy. Uh, and that's just, in, in really speaking here, my own opinion. But they, a lot of what we see as consumer advocates is that they'll do an audit and say, well, um, you know, what is going on? Has the state agency been enforcing the law appropriately? Are the providers who are taking in money, are they using the, the, that, that funding, excuse me, in an appropriate manner to care for their residents? So they also can be uh, very useful and important components in terms of overseeing nursing home care. So to move on to what is happening right now, and it is, I would say, pretty much literally happening right now. So 1987, on the left-hand side of this page, you can see we had the nursing home reform law. That is when the reform law passed as a result of, as I mentioned before, there were a lot of scandals going on. It became clear that the situation in nursing homes, many nursing homes, excuse me, around the country was untenable. And the, at that time, the Reagan administration wanted to reduce regulations, uh, and there was a public outcry because of the scandals. And there was a study was conducted, and the study found that actually there needed to be better standards, and that's where the nursing home reform law came about in, in a nutshell. It took about four years for the regulations to be uh, devised and implemented to, um, uh, to, excuse me, to implement the nursing home reform law. So the law was passed, and the regulations, they set up the body, what the expectations are for the regulatory, excuse me, for the legal requirements. So those regulations came into place in 1991. In 2014, CMS announced that it was going to revise those regulations. So for the first time in almost 25 years, the regulations were being revised. There was a two-year period in which CMS took public comment. We and other advocates uh, commented on the proposed regulations, what we thought was important. The provider industry, over, I would say, overwhelmingly, uh, through their lobbyists, through individual providers, et cetera, had a strong voice in what was going on in terms of the development of the regulations. The final regulations were published in October of last year, 
and they are being implemented in three phases. So last November was phase one, and that was essentially the regulations for which there was pretty much minimal or no change. There was only a couple of things that were that were really uh, a big difference that was implemented last year. Now, November 2017, the second to last column here, that's the phase two implementation. That is taking place November 28th, one week from today. So those implementations will go into effect. And those include some more, I would say, some of the more modest changes. And then in 2019 is, are the phase three implementations. And those, those regulations that are going into effect in phase three uh, are a bit more significant. So an example of a phase three implementation, uh, I can give you two. One is that the, uh, that is when the QAPI, the quality um, assessment program, internal program within nursing homes is supposed to go into effect. This is not something that I um, or other advocates with whom we've worked were particularly interested in. Basically the QAPI program is that a facility should have a way of self-assessing identifying when there's a problem, self-assessing why the problem is happening, and then undergo some corrections. From our perspective, nursing homes are required to meet the minimum standards, period. I am not particularly interested in how a nursing home is going about doing that. I want to see the results. We don't pay nursing homes to be learning on a job. We don't, we're not supposed to be paying nursing homes to provide a substandard level of care. So what they do to meet the minimum standards is their business. It should not be, in my opinion at least, and I think the opinion of other advocates with whom we work, it should not be the business of the public. Uh, frankly, and in short, you should not be learning on the job when you're caring for my grandmother, period. Uh, so that is, you know, those, that's an example. Another example is uh, that, that CMS added was trauma-informed care. So they focused on ensuring that, um, or trying to ensure that the nursing homes were aware of people who had gone through a trauma, uh, for instance, Holocaust survivors, and some of the requirements around that won't be implemented until 2019. I think it's important to summarize that uh, there were not a lot of changes in the new regulations. The, if you look at here at the beginning, 1991, that regulations came out throughout the 25 or so years until 2016, there were tweaks made. There were, there were minor changes made to the guidelines. There were some larger changes made to the actual regulations through the Affordable Care Act, so, so-called Obamacare, uh, the Impact Act that followed in 2015. So there have been changes along the way, and what the regulations largely did was kind of reorganize them. So as I'll mention, you know, later on in the program, none of the residents' rights that we talk about went away. So that is really important, I think, probably one of the most important takeaways for, especially for families and for residents and ombudsmen. There's no excuse not to be honoring a resident's right that existed prior to this year or prior to last year or prior to 2019 because all of those residents' rights stayed the same. But most importantly, the... The, the basic rights, the basic standards really did not change that much from, um, from, you know, 2017 or 2016 to 2015 and the years before because there have been a number of incremental changes over the years. And those changes, frankly, really addressed and incorporated standards of care that 
have been recognized over the years. And we'll talk a little bit more about antipsychotic drug instance and dementia care, but the dementia care standards and the antipsychotic drugging standards have been in place since 1991. So there was some refinement in terms of what the expectations were or how, that, how those expectations were written out in the new regulations. But the regulations, the basic standard itself, did not change. So what does this mean for us? Uh, here are a couple of things that are going on. So all the regulations have changed. If you just think about this structurally, for 25 years, everyone, nursing home, the nursing home owners, the operators, the nursing home surveyors, those are the inspectors, long-term care ombudsmen, advocates, they knew what the rules were and where to find them. So that entire structure has now changed. Numbering has changed, et cetera. Now, all of the guidelines are changing as well. So the federal government has issued extensive guidelines over the years, and they provide really important instructions for what is expected. Those are instructions for the nursing homes. Their instructions also are meaningful to, of course, the surveyors, the inspectors, and they're meaningful to us as advocates, long-term care ombudsmen, families, and residents, et cetera. They say exactly what is supposed to happen. So in the example that I just talked about uh, with antipsychotic drugging is that there has been a prohibition since 1991 for the use against, excuse me, against the use of any medication that is not clinically needed or appropriate for the individual. And there has been a specific prohibition against the use of chemical restraints. That means giving people antipsychotics and other medicines that um, basically stupefy them are often very, very dangerous for the convenience of staff, or to make residents easier to care for without a clinical indication that those medications are meeting a, a diagnosed clinical need of the resident. So that has existed for a very long time, but what is changing now is that some of the guidelines, so for instance, in the new regulations, now the pharmacist is required, and we'll talk about this later, to do a monthly substantive review of every resident's medication. So that, that is a change in some of the practices that we expect, but it is not a change in the quality of care or what we expect to be seeing as far as the resident is concerned. And the reason why I keep on emphasizing that is because I keep on hearing from providers that we don't know what's going on, we need time, um, we need time to get ready for this, this has all been sprung on us. Well, that's just not accurate. Uh, as far as we're concerned. These, as I said, these regulations were first, uh, the changes were first announced in 2014. There was a two-year period in which the providers had a seat at the table in discussing how those regulations were taking shape. There's been a ton of educational materials for providers and for surveyors to know what the expectations are. As I've mentioned a number of times now, the expectations really did not change. It was just, I would say, some of the protocols that we look at have been refined. So there's no excuse for not providing the level of care that we expect under the reform law and through these regulations as far as we're concerned. Uh, in addition, if you look below, the nursing home survey protocols are changing. So a whole new survey system is going into effect across the country beginning again a week from today. 
So there's been a lot of trainings over that. We'll probably do a program early in 2018 on, um, on the new survey protocols. But there's been two survey systems that were going on across the country. There was a traditional survey that existed for many years. And then I think it was about 10 years ago, CMS launched a quality indicator survey that was supposed to do a better job of identifying problems. One thing that many studies have shown, including our own studies here at LTCCC, is that the states don't do a very good job of identifying when there's a problem with resident care, when there's substandard care or neglect or abuse. They don't, they don't always catch it, to say the least. And in addition, and importantly, they don't, um, they, they don't do a very good job of identifying when a resident has been harmed as a result of a deficiency in care or a failure to meet minimum standards. So that is why, you know, the survey is so important. The survey process, the, the traditional survey process was not getting at that. So they developed what's called the quality indicator survey about 10 years ago. And that was being launched throughout the country kind of slowly. So uh, our state here in New York had um, started the quality indicator survey several years ago. And then they kind of put a hold on that a few years ago when we had the economic um, uh, recession in 2008. And also studies were finding that the new survey process, the quality indicator survey, was in some ways doing a worse job at identifying nursing home problems than the uh, traditional survey. So what CMS did is that they combined what they considered to be the best of those two surveys. They've added some things in terms of similar to the regulation, the regulatory standards and changes, excuse me. Uh, they added some things that we've identified over the years as being more important in terms of standards of care, et cetera. So that is being launched also a week from today. And then, as uh, I'll talk about more in our December program, Nursing Home Compare is undergoing some significant changes in terms of the information, the quality of information that is available to the public about the quality of nursing homes in their states and in their communities. So a lot going on. What can we do? Uh, I think, as I mentioned before, it's be really important for us to be as informed as possible and to be knowledgeable. I've mentioned a couple of times that I am very concerned uh, personally to hear that there is a lack of awareness among nursing home staff and administration about the changes going on. I worry that surveyors who, quite frankly, are not always equipped in their states, including New York, to adequately assess what is going on in the facility, that there may be confusion there as well, even though there's been a lot of trainings that there's unfortunately here with all these changes going on, a lot of excuses, I'm afraid, to say, oh, we didn't know about that or we were confused about that. So importantly, it will be up to us to know what our rights are, what rights we have in terms of quality of care, in terms of quality of life, in terms of resident dignity, all, again, as far as I'm concerned, interconnected. And then we will, lastly, we'll need to strengthen our ability to provide a strong voice for quality care and dignity at every single level, whether it be for resident and resident councils, family and family councils, the ombudsman and the other advocates who work with residents, including, of course, attorneys and the state agencies, the Medicaid for control units, et cetera, that they will know, uh, that we will all know, uh, what we are entitled to and be able to help residents understand what they are entitled to 
and to be able to advocate effectively. I just want to mention also, this is not just to say, you know, um, that to understand that you have the right to this, and it's not necessarily, excuse me, an adversarial process. Uh, I was at a program where a nursing home resident spoke a couple of weeks ago in D.C., and she said that she uses uh, information that she has about what her rights are to help her caregivers to look, you know, to show them, look, I know I'm entitled to this. How can you help me achieve it? So this works in a number of ways, and I think that's important for us to see that one, to know what our rights are so that we can advocate for them, but also to know what our rights are and what residents' rights are so we can help residents and those who provide professional care uh, achieve, achieve that quality and that level of care. So in the rest of the program, what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight some of the important nursing home standards and protections that, um, you know, that we've identified as I think being both important, uh, generally speaking, and important in terms of resident advocacy and the, uh, the residents and the families and the ombudsman with whom we speak, some of the issues that they've addressed. And along with that, I'm also going to talk about some of the resources that we have for resident-centered advocacy, I think I mentioned before, we have fact sheets. All this work, again, has been being done with the support of the New York State Health Foundation, so uh, we're very thankful to that. Before I turn the slide, you can see, on, if you go to our website, actually, you can see I put here a Facebook icon, a Twitter icon, and a YouTube, that, that uh, arrow icon. Those are, you can actually access our Facebook page and our Twitter uh, page which has information. There's a lot going on, so we try to keep people up to date. And then the YouTube icon, the red icon, is where you can find the recordings of these programs. So very briefly, residents' rights, as I said before, and as you'll see here on the right, all existing residents' rights were retained in the new regulations. Residents' rights include, but aren't limited to, the right to be treated with dignity and respect, the right to privacy and to keep and use your personal belongings and property, the right to manage your own money or to choose someone else who you trust to do this for you as a resident, the right to be informed about your medical condition, about any medications that are proposed, and to see your own doctor. You also have the right to refuse any medications and treatment. I just want to spend a moment on that. So that, for us, has been a huge issue. It's what we call informed consent, that you as a resident or if you lack capacity, your family member, whoever you have assigned to make decisions for you, that that person has the right to be informed about your medical condition, about any medications or other proposed treatment, about alternatives to that medication or proposed treatment, no matter what their costs are, and also to see your own doctor, you have the right to choose a physician. In addition, you have the right to refuse any of those medications or treatments or to to change a position. So that these are really important things. We talk about this a lot in terms of residents and families not having informed consent that you know, we'll speak to uh, family members and they won't know that their loved one, for instance, has been, has been given an antipsychotic drug or is, is on antipsychotic drugs because they were never told, they never even knew this was an issue until they heard about it from a program from the ombudsman, pro, you know, from an ombudsman or program that we gave, where all of a sudden they said, hmm, uh, my, you know, my loved one is not doing well, let me, and, and it sounds like she's experiencing some of the things that this guy talked about, let me go check, and, and we hear back from families that, you know what, she was actually on a antipsychotic drug, 
and we are now working to get her off of that drug. So informed consent is really important. The right to choose your own doctor, again, is really important. A lot of people, uh, including nursing homes, don't understand that residents or their representatives have the right to choose a doctor. And the new regulations, we're not going to talk too much about it today, but the new regulations specify that a facility cannot put up unnecessary roadblocks to stop someone from seeing their doctor. So the doctor has to be willing to come into the facility. The facility can't force someone. You can't force your, your doctor to continue to come into the facility. But on the other hand, the facility cannot say, oh, you have to see our medical director or you have to see our doctor. The facility is not allowed to do that. Uh, next, you have the right to a choice over your schedule. For example, when you get up and when you go to sleep, of activities and other preferences that are important to you. And lastly, you have the right to an environment more like a home that maximizes your comfort and provides you with assistance to be as independent as possible. Now, a nursing home doesn't have to change its entire structure. I mean, many, many nursing homes do look like hospitals. Um, sometimes they were, you know, used to be hospitals. Um, that is what it is. We encourage nursing homes to do so-called culture change, to change their environment, et cetera. But in terms of the right we're talking about here is that, for instance, you have a right where it's possible, uh, you know, and safe to bring in, you know, a piece of furniture, to bring in a chair, to have pictures up, et cetera, that there are ways in which the nursing home is responsible for ensuring that it is a home-like environment. We have further materials on this on our website in terms of dining and in terms of, um, in terms of quality of life and living environment that can help you to uh, to advocate for this. Lastly, as you see at the bottom, the very small type, all this comes from Medicare.gov uh, residents' rights. Is it, these are not things that I made up. These are not things that I think are, are important. I do think that they're important, but these are, this language comes pretty much exactly. It's, you know, it's just a little bit paraphrased from what the federal requirements and expectations are. So I'm going to highlight a few of the nursing home standards uh, that are, you know, how they appear, I should say, in the new regulations. So minimum staffing requirements. Now, CMS did not, uh, and we had, we, had, we had advocated for CMS to say have a number, have a basic number of minimum safe staff that every nursing home should have. The provider industry, frankly, is vehemently against minimum staffing standards, and so they were successful in fighting that off in the federal regulations that came out last year. But what CMS has done is that they said that facility must provide services by sufficient numbers of each of the following types of personnel on a 24-hour basis to provide nursing care to all residents in accordance with resident care plans. That includes licensed nurses and CNAs, et cetera. But generally we talk about licensed nurses, RNs, and LPNs, as well as the CNAs, those are the people who principally provide services to nursing home residents. So the sufficient staffing level, that's been in place since 1987 and in the regulations since 1991. But what we have seen here is that, and you'll see in the next bullet, that CMS is saying that the facility must not just have sufficient staff, but they actually added with the appropriate competencies and skills to provide nursing and related services to, this is quoting, assure resident safety and attain or maintain the highest practicable physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being of each resident. 
as determined by resident assessments and their individual plans of care. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And considering the number, acuity, and diagnoses of the facility's resident population. That, that language, which I have in italics here, if you're looking at the slide, that's all new. So that's, you know, they did not, they stepped back. They refused to do a minimum number. But what they have added is that they are expecting the facility to take seriously and to be doing uh, a meaningful assessment of what their residents' needs are, what the plans of care, uh, based upon the resident assessment, what the plans of care say that each resident should have. Uh, they include, of course, the highest practicable language here. So, again, there's, it kind of gets at the, the example I gave before. There's no excuse to say, oh, we don't have enough staff to take your mother to the bathroom. Or people who, who come in, you know, we, we, we're in a nursing home, and sometimes we see that a nurse or a CNA will come into a nurse's uh, residence room where a call bell is on, turn off the call bell, and then walk away without caring for the resident. That is, you know, to say that there's not enough staff is not an excuse. And here we're seeing language that says we expect the facility to be professionally looking at this. And again, as you can see here, we didn't change the standard. What we did was we refined how we are looking at this and how we expect the facilities to be meeting those standards. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about resident assessment and care planning, and I also have a fact sheet attached here. All of our fact sheets, again, are available at nursinghome411.org. All the materials are free. I'm very happy for you to use them. You can take them and copy them onto your own materials if that is useful to you and distribute them to your members in your community, or you can just distribute them as, as they are on our website. But resident assessment, this is really important. The resident assessment and care planning to me are the basis of what the facility is supposed to be doing and also the basis, I think, for our advocacy, especially for those of us who work with individuals. So a facility must, and this I've highlighted it, but this is language from the federal requirements or paraphrase from the federal requirements. A facility must make an assessment of the resident's capacity, needs, and preferences. The assessment must include a wide range of resident needs and abilities. That's, that's a federal language. A facility is expected to primarily rely on direct observation and communication with the resident in order to assess his or her functional capacity. What does that mean? That means that the resident assessment should not take place with the, at the resident and the family member, the family members there, knowing about it and without them participating. Too often we hear that the assessment was done and the family is then informed or the resident is then informed afterwards. Here, CMS is making very clear that that is not appropriate. Next, planning a resident's care. So a resident's care plan must, not my words, the federal language, must describe, quote, the services to be furnished to attain or maintain the resident's highest practicable physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being. The care plan must be based on the resident assessment. So in other words, it must come from the resident's needs and abilities not the services or the staffing levels which a nursing home decides to provide based on its own financial or other priorities. So as I mentioned before, I wanted to talk about some of the fact sheets. These also were part of the project that the New York State Health Foundation has funded this year, 
And I, um, so we were able to provide these materials and I just wanted to make people aware because I think that they're pretty useful. This is actually one of my favorites and, uh, one for which we've gotten a lot of good feedback. So here really it spells out. This, this is the fact sheet on resident assessment and care planning. So you can see on the left hand side, resident assessment. I include, if you look at the purple, um, resident assessment in the 42 CFR 483.20 for every provision of any regulation that we talk about in any fact sheet, we always include the section of the Code of Federal Regulations and the FTAG number. So why? Why do I do that? Not because you have to be a lawyer, not because you have to go to a lawyer. The reason why I include that is so you have an actual reference. You're not just saying, oh, LTCCC or, or Richard um, you know, said that this is the rights that I have. You can go back and you can refer this to the actual regulation. The reason why I include the F tag, now the F tag is the tag that surveyors use when they cite a facility for failing to meet the standard. So that is included here also for your reference. And the principal reason for that is if you're working in a nursing home, if you're looking at nursing homes in your state, you can see when they have been cited for failing to meet that standard very easily by going to the F tag. If you look at a statement of deficiencies, for a nursing home, uh, whether you do that, every nursing home has to has to have its latest survey results, the statement of deficiencies available to the public, so you can go to the front desk or wherever, and it's also available at nursing, excuse me, at the Medicare uh, Nursing Compare website. When you go to a facility's listing, you can see it'll be marked by FTAG what the um, what if any of the citations that were found for the nursing home. So here, very briefly, again. What I mentioned, what I just talked about before is here in the exact federal language. Anything in italics that I include is the federal language. Facility must conduct initially and periodically a comprehensive, accurate, standardized, reproducible assessment of each resident's functional capacity. The facility must make a comprehensive assessment of a resident's needs, strengths, goals, life history, and preferences. Again, getting back to the quality of life is so important using the resident assessment instrument, RAI, specified by CMS, excuse me. So a few things, and I put a checklist here. The assessment must include at least the following. Demographic information, customary routine, cognitive patterns, whether the resident has dementia or, or, or other, other cognitive issues, mood and behavioral uh, patterns, their physical functioning, whether they're continent or not, um, dental and nutritional status, skin condition, Activity pursuits, what they're interested in, their medications, uh, discharge plan. Does the resident want to leave? And, and is it possible to make that happen? That's something which, you know, many advocates are now, you know, and rightfully so focusing on people. If they can get out of a nursing home, they should be able to do so. So here's a, a checklist. As I note in the green box on the second, on the first page, use this checklist to identify what is important to you when you have a resident assessment. Because it's very easy, and as I said, I've been a family member. I've certainly been a consumer of medical services. I know it's very difficult when you're facing a doctor in a limited time frame of a care planning meeting or examination, et cetera, to know what I may want to ask about, what concerns I might have, what priorities I might have when I'm coming into a nursing home. This allows you to look at that and choose, you know, choose the things that are important. Jot down, you know, make, print out a copy of this and jot down some of the things that are important to you, and you can take that to your care planning meeting. And if you're working with resident or family councils, you can use this 
to um, to help them to do that. On the second page, very briefly, um, in regard to a comprehensive person-centered care plan, the facility must develop and implement a comprehensive person-centered care plan for each resident consistent with resident rights, all the res rights we spoke about before and others, that include measurable objectives and timeframes. So keep that in mind. We're talking about care planning, measurable objectives and timeframes to meet a resident's medical, nursing, and mental and psychosocial needs that have been identified in the assessment. So I won't get into too much here, but I think this provides some really good tools. If you'll notice in the orange box, we actually have a second fact sheet on care planning requirements because we thought there was some important stuff here that I wanted to have an additional page that I thought would be useful, and then some basic considerations to keep in mind. Facility must make an assessment of the resident's capacity, needs, and preferences. The assessment must include a wide range of resident needs and abilities, including their customary routine, their cognitive patterns, their mood, etc. Uh, so we put some things here that I think will be useful, and the goal of these fact sheets, as you can see here, is to make them as useful as possible to residents, to families, to ombudsmen, and to others who are working with residents and families to realize the, their rights, to realize that their needs are being met in the facility. Next, I'm going to move on to freedom from abuse, neglect, and exploitation. The resident has the right to be free from abuse, neglect, misappropriation of resident property, and exploitation. This includes, but is not limited to, freedom from corporal punishment, involuntary seclusion, any physical or chemical restraint not required to treat the resident's medical symptoms. So that's really important. In terms of, you know, corporal punishment, involuntary seclusion, they sound like they may be outliers, but too often we hear of a worker, a resident with dementia got upset and she scratched the resident and the worker slapped her back. CMS has explicitly said to us that that is never appropriate and never permissible. There is no, no circumstance under which a caregiver in a nursing home should be retaliating. It's up to the caregiver, as CMS has said over and over again. I don't include it here, um, but it said over and over again, that is never appropriate. So I'll just talk briefly because I didn't realize we're close to one. I'll probably go a little bit over. I apologize for that. I hope you guys uh, who are able to will stay with me. If not, if you need to leave at 2 o'clock, uh, then we will have this recorded on the YouTube page again. But very quickly, some of the protections against abuse, neglect, and exploitation. I want to move down here on the left-hand side to number three, key definitions, because I thought that these were important. Uh, abuse includes the willful infliction of injury, unreasonable confinement, intimidation, punishment, etc. Things that you would expect, but it also includes, as I put in bold here, the deprivation by any individual, including a caretaker, of goods or services that are necessary to attain or maintain physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being. I hear too often, and we've heard this in past cases from our Medicaid Fort Control Unit here in New York, of a resident with um, dementia or who was upset, uh, you know, who's wheelchair bound, being moved into a dark room and a door closed. And that is, again, a form of abuse. Uh, some of these things uh, are should be very obvious, but sometimes they're not. I want to quickly move to the top of the right-hand side, because I thought this was really interesting, too. Uh, number four, federal guidelines. CMS has put in 
what they have identified as facility characteristics associated with increased risk of abuse. Remember I, I said at the very beginning, I personally, and when I go into a nursing home and I see poor living conditions or that a lot of residents are zonked out in wheelchairs or the call bells are going unanswered, that to me is a sign that there's probably things going on, that the clinical care there is not uh, is likely not very good. Uh, because again, they tend, just tend to match up. Either you're committed to your residents and you're providing both good care and you're treating them respectfully and you're meeting their psychosocial needs, or you're, if you're not interested in doing one, you're generally, in my experience, not interested in doing both. Here, CMS itself, again, this is all CMS language, they've identified facility characteristics that could increase the risk for abuse. And those include, but aren't limited to, unsympathetic or negative attitude towards residents, chronic staffing problems. This is CMS saying, if you're seeing these things, that increases the risk for abuse in a facility. Lack of administrative oversight, staff burnout, stressful working conditions, poor or inadequate preparation or training for caregiving responsibilities, deficiencies in the physical environment, and facility policies that operate in the interest of the institution rather than that of residents. This is all coming from CMS. I mean, things that, that I've always thought, but this is coming from CMS. So it really should clue you in if you're going into a nursing home as, a, as an attorney, if you're going in as part of an, a state agency, if you're going in as a family member or a potential family member or a resident or a potential resident, that these things are all indicators of that something is likely to be very wrong here. Lastly, on this page, I just wanted to mention this has been an enormous issue for us. There was a, a recent study that came out. It was actually called an early alert from the U.S. Inspector General for the Department of Health and Human Services that found that an alarming number of facilities were not reporting resident abuse neglect or suspicion of a crime against a nursing home resident as they are required to under federal or state law. Uh, so there is some information here about what to look for, et cetera. We have a lot of information about this. We've done a lot of work in this area over the last um, seven or eight years, especially on our website. But that is a big, big issue that you know, if someone is abused, if someone is neglected, there's any suspicion of any crime, whether physical harm or not, against a resident, those things must be reported appropriately. So we have some of the guidelines here, and you're free to use them again as well as anything else. So I think the last uh, the thing that we'll talk about today in terms of the fact sheets and some of the provisions is freedom from inappropriate drugs and chemical restraints. This is an enormous issue. It's one that is close to my heart and we've done a lot of work on. We have a dementia care advocacy toolkit on our website in the Learning Center uh, with special fact sheets just focused on dementia care. But it's important for people to know 20% of nursing home residents right now are being administered antipsychotic drugs. Far too often these residents are given antipsychotic drugs in place of appropriate care, uh, especially when they exhibit so-called behavioral or psychological symptoms of dementia. That could be upset. Sometimes um, I know of someone who would make a constant chirping noise when they were nervous. Uh, sometimes people uh, resident with dementia will cry or they'll lash out, etc. Those are what 
it's called, commonly called, excuse me, behavioral symptoms of dementia, it is fundamentally important for us and for caregivers to understand that the so-called symptoms of dementia are a form of communication. Residents with dementia, when they do this, when they cry or they scream or they spit or they, they scratch, whatever it might be, they are trying to communicate something and they are not able necessarily to say, oh, I'm in pain or oh, you scared me or oh, my, t- my stomach hurts or my back hurts um, or I'm bored. So that's what a communication is and it's the nursing home's responsibility under the federal regulations to be addressing those so-called behaviors with what we call non-pharmacological approaches, not using antipsychotic drugs to treat them. And I was actually at a presentation a couple of weeks ago in Washington with a uh, former, um, actually I think he's still a director, uh, medical director for a couple of nursing homes in Virginia, Jonathan Evans. He's a, a tremendous, uh, tremendously knowledgeable and has become a real advocate on these issues. But I believe he said that none of his residents receive antipsychotic drugs for any behavior. And that is pretty much the way it should be. Uh, I know in terms of the standards of care, sometimes people will say, well, it's useful to, to treat someone with a antipsychotic drug, excuse me, or a, a sedative if they're a danger to themselves or a danger to others for a short period of time. That is, you know, that is potent, you know, that is possible and that may be okay. But that, sorry, but that, that should be changed as quickly as possible for reducing and eliminating those drugs and uh, using non-pharmacological approaches. I was at a hearing um, uh, yesterday in New York State downtown, and a provider representative said, well, sometimes residents come in and they're on antipsychotic drugs already from the hospital. That may be the case. It is still the nursing home's responsibility to immediately undertake gradual dose reduction and be implementing non-pharmacological approaches. So I'm going to briefly review the um, the fact sheet that we have on this. We have a couple of fact sheets. As I said, we have a whole toolkit, in fact, on, on dementia care and reducing antipsychotic drugs. One of the things on the left-hand side, number one, drug regimen review, and this was new and this was added in the regulations. I mentioned it briefly before. The drug regimen of each resident must be reviewed at least once a month by a licensed pharmacist. This is all federal language, as you can see in italics, and the, but the must, the the, um, the bold is what I put in. Must be reviewed at least once a month by a licensed pharmacist. The review must include a review of the resident's medical chart. The pharmacist must report any irregularities to the attending physician and the facility's medical director and the director of nursing, and these reports must be acted upon. This is all that's required now. The pharmacist must, I'm sorry, I said that already. Um, So irregularities include but are not limited to any drug that meets the criteria set forth in paragraph D, which as I note here is free from unnecessary drugs, which I talk about further below. Any irregularities noted by the pharmacist during this review must be documented on a separate written report that is sent 
to the attending physician and the facility's medical director and director of nursing, and it must list at a minimum the resident's name, the relevant drug, and the irregularity the pharmacist identified. The attending physician must document in the resident's medical record that the identified irregularity has been reviewed and what, if any, action has been taken to address it. If there is to be no change in the medication, the attending physician should document his or her rationale in the resident's medical record. Why is this here? Why is this added? Again, as I mentioned before, the standard has not changed in 25 years. You are not allowed, you're not supposed to, and you're not allowed, you're not being paid as a nursing home to provide people with drugs that they do not have a clinical need for. And the use of drugs as a form of chemical restraint to calm down a resident or to make a resident easier to care for is, again, not legal and it's not appropriate. So what CMS added here, they didn't change the requirement. What they said now is because we know that this requirement is not being met for an awful lot of people in our residents, uh, you know, in our facilities, excuse me, that we want to make sure that the pharmacist is doing a meaningful review on a monthly basis, and we want to have a record in writing that this is being reviewed by the people who are able to review it. This is not something that people... Are, you know, we've seen in the past where people were just calling in prescriptions. They were doing PRN, which roughly means that they're allowing the nursing staff, the care staff, to provide these drugs as they felt was necessary on the floor. That led to an awful lot of inappropriate drugging abuse. And uh, as many of you know who've been on prior programs that I've done or, uh, you know, know from your own reading, these drugs have a high incidence of causing death. Uh, and they also have a high incidence of causing uh, such, um, excuse me, such um, side effects as Parkinsonism, increasing falls, etc. This is seriously uh, dangerous medication, and CMS is requiring now that facilities take more seriously in writing. It's something that we can that actually exists or that can be proved exists. I should say that this is going on. Uh, and then I include here the freedom from unnecessary drugs, what that means. Um, there's some special requirements in terms of psychotropic drugs so that they're not allowed to be given for a long period of time. And then I include in the pink box some of the basic dementia care requirements and expectations. I won't go into that here because I know that we are close to out of time. So I'm going to first see if anyone wrote in any comments because it looks like there was some some here. Uh, okay, so I'm going to address some of these, and then I'm going to open it up for questions on the line. I thank everyone again for, I'm sorry I went a few minutes over, and I'm willing to stay on for as long as people have questions. But uh, before I do, I just want to thank you again very much for participating today. Our next program is on December 19th, and I wish you all a very, very happy and safe Thanksgiving. So uh, someone asked, does anything in the regs mention repatriation, putting people back in their home state when they've been placed out of state for care? Uh, I don't believe so. There are requirements in terms of what the nursing home is supposed to be helping people, you know, uh, you know if they close, et cetera, or if there's a transfer, that that should go to uh, someplace, uh, you know, close by. Uh, and I think that there was some refinement in terms of uh, ensuring that that was close by to where the resident actually lived. Uh, some of the cases that we have seen is that a resident, maybe in a rural area, will go to 
a large hospital center in a you know far from their home and then be placed or be given choices about nursing home placement that is close to the hospital but not close to the home. Uh, the person also asked, what is the site for that part you mentioned about placing someone close to home when the home is closing? Uh, you know, I don't have a, uh, a site for that, but I would look at transfer and discharge. Uh, there's some regulations, and I would look at the guidance for that. Uh, that guidance is available online, which goes into more more detail. But a lot of that also goes to, to be honest, to what the hospitals are doing. And there are, uh, unfortunately, a lot of problems in hospital discharge planning and in the knowledge of the social workers and hospital discharge planners when they're working with individuals, patients, and their families in terms of uh, placement from the facility. There's not, and, and you know what, I'm not sure, to be honest, that it'd be in the nursing home regulations at all, because this really goes to more of a hospital discharge issue than it goes to a nursing home issue. But there might be some, some information in terms of transfer and discharge. Uh, and then let me see, um, just trying to go in order. The, um, uh, when do the pharmacy review requirements begin? Uh, thanks for that question. I, I believe that they're in place now, but I will um, check that to make sure, and I'll post it on our Twitter and Facebook page. So I'm just writing that down. But I am pretty sure that those are in place uh, right now. Thanks for that question. And again, I will do that um, you know, as soon as we, we get off our program today. I'll check, and I'll post that on our Twitter feed. My Twitter feed, by the way, is LTC Consumer. And our Facebook page is Facebook uh, forward slash, I think, LTCCC. But if you look us up, we're there. Or you can go to our website, nursinghome411.org, and access either one. Uh, are lock wards ever appropriate for residents who may wander? Uh, that was another question. That, that's, that's a really good question. In the past, uh, a lot of facilities were doing, you know, special dementia care units, et cetera. Uh, and but studies have shown that that actually is not beneficial for residents, generally speaking. So locked wards are, I would say, they are, in my opinion, not appropriate, generally speaking. And I think that is borne out by what studies have shown that locked wards. Uh, and if I was going to a nursing home, if I was placing someone with dementia, I would. Uh, try to avoid some place that had a special unit or a locked ward. It tends not to um, benefit the residents. And again, thinking about everything we've talked about in today's program as well as others, they are supposed to be providing resident-centered care. This is not so. They're supposed to be, you know, ensuring that there are safeguards in place based upon the resident and his or her needs, where he or she may be going in her life, including wandering, etc. That there is appropriate monitoring. Uh, this is not, as I've often said, this is, this is not a YMCA where you're getting a cot and a towel for 25 bucks. Nursing homes are paid hundreds of dollars a day generally, sometimes many hundreds of day, dollars a day, to provide individualized resident-centered care to ensure that those residents receive the appropriate treatment and monitoring that they need as individuals in a humane way that addresses uh, who they are and where they are. So I'm going to open it up now for questions. Um, hi, R Richard. Hi. Hi. How are you? Um, hi, Charles. I have a qu 
I have a question about the the choosing your own physician regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that it's more difficult to implement in practice than uh, to talk about in theory. What I what I've run into is facilities trying to impose restrictions. Yeah, you can choose your this one is your primary physician, but the, but the physician's got to be willing to come to the facility for make site visits or for certain meetings or whatever. Otherwise, we can't allow it. So, um, what exactly is the extent of the residents' rights in this regard, and what what restrictions does the facility have the right to impose? Uh, well, that that's a really good question. So, I, just to mention, you no, know, well, just to say, as I mentioned earlier on. These regulations have been, the new regulations have been under development for, it's been three years now. And the nursing home industry uh, had a substantial role in providing commentary and in shaping what these new regulations are. One of the ways in which CMS did this is they issued proposed regulations in 2015, and they received, I believe it was over 10,000 different comments that they responded to. And those, you know, their responses to those comments are actually all available. And I've read, not all of them, but I've read most of them. CMS mentioned that they were surprised at how many um, comments they received from nursing homes saying that it was unfair for CMS to now require that a resident had the right, to, has the right to choose his or her position uh, CMS was surprised by how many nursing homes voiced objection to that because that that standard that right has been in place since 1991. So as Charles just asked the question is saying, it is very difficult to implement that. Uh, as we can see from what CMS itself said, the responses there were a lot of people who a lot of nursing homes I should say who did not understand that. And my takeaway when I read that was not only were there many people in the industry who didn't understand that, clearly there were many surveyors, uh, many state agencies that had no clue that residents had the rights because no one was, this, this requirement was never enforced or, or, or apparently very rarely, if ever, enforced. So yes, it's, it's, I think it's very difficult what CMS did in the new regulations is that they said that the facility cannot put up barriers in terms of allowing a unreasonable barriers in terms of uh, allowing a doctor to practice within the facility. So the issue, as I mentioned before, it's really twofold. One is that you have to have a doctor. Your doctor has to be willing to um, to go into a nursing home. And that can be challenging. Your doctor may not want to do that. Not a lot of doctors um, may want to do that. But secondly, in terms of if a nursing home says no, then you can go to the residents' rights. And this is something, and, and actually Charles, who asked that question, is, is working with us on, on the primer that we have on residents' rights. And we should include that, make sure that that right is included in the primer so people can have a, an understanding or access to what those rights are. So just to briefly explain what I mean by that, that we have these fact sheets, but we also did two publications a couple of years ago, one that provided an overview, what we call a primer, on all of the regulations that we identified, you know, being as pretty much most important to resident care, resident concerns, and resident-centered advocacy. So we provided, you know, what the regulation is 
and a short explanation of why, how to use it and why, you know, why it was important and how it could be useful, I should say, to, um, to consumers. So we will include that in there. We're updating it now that we did that in 2015 and Charles updated it with the new regulations earlier this year. But actually we want to update it again because all those new guidelines are coming into effect, uh, a week from today. So we hopefully we'll get that out, uh, you know, in the next several weeks. But that is a good question, and we'll, we'll, we'll add that to that as well. And maybe, you know, if people are hearing uh, issues, please, you know, let us know. You shoot me an email. We can't help with individual problems. I wish we could. We just don't have the capacity to do that. But if I hear from people, we'll try to address them in our fact sheets and in future programs. And my email is richard at ltccc.org. Again, I apologize. Um, you know, it's really just me. We can't... Um, I'm not able to respond to to individual questions or to help with individual problems. I wish that we could do that, but uh, I would recommend going to the ombudsman for you know to the extent you can for help with individual problems. Of course, filing a complaint with either your Medicaid fraud control unit or your um, Department of Health or state agency. But uh, you know it is a it will require some thoughtful and strong advocacy to answer Charles' questions about ensuring that a uh, person can have access to his or her doctor if the doctor is willing to come in. Uh, there's a couple of questions that came in online, so I'm going, to, um, I'm going to address them before I take any more questions by phone. Uh, so one person asked, do any of the regulations provide a lever for residents and families to acquire profit loss information from a private nursing home? Well, yes, they do, actually. So the... Um, the regu- I think this was under the Affordable Care Act, required that nursing home compare, it's medicare.gov, nursing home compare. Um, if you go to medicare.gov, you should be able to find nursing home compare right there. There is a bit more transparency in terms of ownership. Uh, now, in terms of profit and losses, that's a good question. There's, um, there, there are no requirements in terms of profit, you know, uh, profit and loss information, so I apologize. Um, I don't think I was clear. There is, a, there is information on ownership, and to some extent you can find information about profits and losses, uh, about facilities, depending upon whether it's a not-for-profit, that would be available online. You can get a, a facility's 1099 form, for instance. Uh, for-profit facilities for corporations, you can find some information online as well. Uh, some of that I think you might have to pay for. And there's a company called Hoover's, for instance, who does uh, corporate provides corporate information. So to that extent, some of this information is available. It may also be uh, with uh, you know information in the Attorney General's office for for your state as well. But it's not readily available. But in addition, I should say that many states now, including New York, have cost reports available online. California does a particularly good job. I, my you know from to my knowledge. Of providing good summaries for those cost reports because they can be very difficult to wade through. But those cost reports include information on, um, you know, on expenditures. I just want to lastly note in this regard that, you know, profits and losses are a somewhat, you know, there's a lot of issues with them. A lot of facilities, unfortunately, because there's no uh, accountability in terms of how much money is spent on administrative services 
or, or really very little to no accountability. There's um, very little to no accountability in terms of how much you spend or pay for rental on an underlying property or laundry services or management services, etc. that uh, a lot of facilities that we hear about uh, will hide some of their profits and even indicate that they have losses when there's um, they, they could be hiding some of this money or putting some of this money in ways that is not the, I would say, to put it nicely, the optimal, optimal way in which those monies could be spent. Uh, this is something we certainly recommend taking to the, um, you know, not only the Medicaid fraud control unit, but in especially controller's office, et cetera, in state. So I hope that answers, that answers the question. Uh, now someone asked where we can find the new regulations in full. If you go to regulations.gov, uh, you can search there for the nursing home regulations. Uh, they're, they're available there as well. Uh, also, can come to Billy Wrights. Uh, show what that question is. Sorry about that. Um, I, 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 uh, excuse me. So uh, the person responded about the ownership information, only individuals named as owners. And that's true. It's very, very difficult. Uh, what I have done in the past when I've looked into an individual owner is I have tried to do some searches to find out about them. Sometimes, again, we will have a, they'll be part of a limited liability company, but frankly, there is not a lot of transparency in terms of the profits and losses. So I, uh, I apologize. I, I, when I saw the question, I conflated that with ownership information, which, uh, for which there is more, um, information available to the public, but there is not, uh, there, there's not a lot of good information in terms of profits and losses. And as I said before, there, is unfortunately a lot of ways in which profits um, that nursing homes make uh, can be hidden. So I'm going to open up anyone else who wants to answer. I would say press star six on your phone. So this way I won't unmute everybody. Okay. Well, I thank you all for participating today. Again, our next call is December 19th. We will be sending out invites. The, uh, the fact sheets are available on the website. If anyone is a, uh, a long-term care ombudsman in New York State, you can, uh, you can take the survey. We'll send that out as well. We have a survey for ombudsman volunteers. Some of the, the local programs are providing in-service credits, and we ask that you take a small survey so we can let your supervisor know. Otherwise, again, thank you very much. Uh, have a very good Thanksgiving, and thank you all for the work you're doing to improve resident care and quality of life. It, it means a lot. So thank you. Bye-bye now.